0: Well, let's get into our uh, our message today, and uh, we'll be starting a brand new series. And you know how I love starting new series. We're going to be in fir- the book of First Peter. Uh, and uh, so what we'll be doing. Now, our memory verse for this series, we're going to have one memory verse, and this is kind of the core verse, the central verse for this entire book as I look through it. Uh, in First Peter 2.21, it says this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, that's a pretty powerful verse, isn't it? Yes. I Think about this, about how uh, what God calls us to in this life is a very different thing than most of us think it is. Right, but First Peter reminds us of really God's big plan, and and really how we get through life. And 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 I think it comes down to grace. And you say, "Well, I didn't hear the word grace in that memory verse." Well, it's the grace that helps us through it. I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but but life can be hard. Right? It's it's not always uh, you know birthday cakes and party time. There, it can be difficult. It can be painful bad things happen to everyone and, and uh, just uh, what a uh, couple weeks ago we got a, a pretty hard reminder of that you see this world is not a safe place it's a broken place and it's a place that breaks people and because of that faith isn't easy I think when bad things happen and, and, and difficulties come into our lives our faith gets rocked very few people are like my wife who when suffering came into her life she said why not me Uh, more people I think are like I was, and I would say, why me? Right? And challenge the brokenness around us and say, how could a good God let bad things happen? Right? Have we heard that before? Have you said that before? Brokenness makes our faith hard. And our world is is in a place now where there's a lot of brokenness that is evident, and faith is becoming more and more difficult. Our faith actually is under attack. Look at the, the media. I would think it's been interesting here in these last couple of days as there have been bathroom wars. Who would have thought five years ago, even, that we would be where we are today? But, uh, but a lot of articles uh, written in, in big newspapers, you know, New York Times, things like this, uh, writing attacking Christians. Uh, we're not the politicians. But attacking Christians, saying, Look how out, out of date these people are, how awful they are, how ignorant they are. Not attacking Muslims or, or Hindus or anybody else who would have problems with the way culture is going, but specifically, why? Why would they target us? I don't know. Or music. Look at the music today. I, I, I was listening to my with my son. I had a couple weeks off, and I was cleaning his room and stuff like this and listened to a lot of the music. And, and I like tunes, and I have a hard time understanding lyrics, so I'll go online, and then I'll look at the lyrics. Cause, and it's amazing the things that are being presented now. And, and popular music, horrible ideas about how life works, about how love should be expressed, uh, about how culture and family and society ought to operate. We are well beyond a, a, a biblical understanding of how this world was designed. And uh, and those that would hold that are being attacked even in our music or in our movies. When was the last time you saw a movie where there was a person that, uh, by the way, fundamental Christian is not a bad word. It means that we believe in the fundamentals of our faith. It's like a football player is a fundamentalist football player, knows how to tackle, knows how to run, knows how to carry the ball, knows how to catch. Right? A fundamentalist Christian believes in the fundamentals of our faith. The Bible is true, Jesus came, he died, he rose again, right? There's, going to be, there's a heaven and a hell, right? <laughs> there is a God fundamental. We believe in the fundamentals of the faith. When was the last time you saw a movie where there was a fundamentalist Christian that was portrayed in any way but evil? You understand that our society has gone to a point where it is, is saying that those with faith are ignorant. Look online and all the little comment sections below anything. Watch a cat video and at some point they're going to go through and they're going to tell you how stupid anybody who has faith is. We live in a world where in which, right now, the fastest growing segment, religious segment in our population is by far called the nuns. And those aren't the religious ladies in the Catholic Church. These are the people, when they're asked, what religion do you hold? They say, none. We are an increasingly anti God, anti faith, secular culture. And it's not just in, in the media and all those things, it's in the classroom. I think uh, when I, I went, just took my son on a field trip to the national park, he's uh, fourth grade, seems innocent enough. You know how many times up there that they talk about how you know, things were designed in such a way that there really is no need for God just explaining things from a natural world point? And my son, who is very bold in his faith, would challenge them and how they would say, oh, that's fine if you want to believe that. But the rest of us, you understand that we live in a world in which, even in our classroom, when our children are being taught that there is no need for God. We're in the public square. It's an interesting enough that, that I've had people say to me, It's fine, I'm, I don't, I'm too smart to be religious. But I'm not going to say it's bad for you as long as you do that in the privacy of your own home in those special places that we don't have to see. But don't bring your religion out into society, don't bring your faith out here. You understand, we live in a world in which, right now, to, to live our faith stands out, oftentimes to the point of ridicule. Now, this is not a bash on a culture. This is just the place that we are. You know, this is not the first time that we've seen this. And it's not the only place in the world. It's not just in American culture. Look in the world. Uh, right now, there are more Christians being martyred for their faith than any time in history. By far. And, and martyrdom doesn't always end in death. A lot of times it ends in maiming. And you understand that there are Christians all over the world. Look at what ISIS is doing. Straight up genocide. That's that's what the UN has called it. Because that's what it is. Why? Because of people of faith. It's not always easy to hold to our faith, sometimes it makes us a target. There are repressive regimes, North Korea, China, even Russia. When I was down in Ukraine, you know one of the first things the Russians did in Ukraine when they invaded? They went into churches and they shot pastors in their pulpits. Why? Because they didn't run, because they weren't part of the Orthodox Russian church that the Russians run. Because they see faith as a threat. You see, all around the world, it is not simply uh, an easy thing to cling to Faith. On top of that, we have brokenness, which makes it hard. And even here in the U.S., we even have laws now that, that cause Christians to have a question, a crisis of conscience. Do I obey the law? Do I obey my conscience? And that's an interesting thing from a country that was founded upon people who left repressive regimes so that we could live according to our consciences. But it's here, and we're not the first, and we're not the last Christians that will face these things. We don't cry ourselves a pity party. But we have to ask ourselves, how do I live... In a world like this, I have to ask yourself: Can faith survive in such a hostile, toxic environment? And the answer is a resounding yes. It can, and it does. And not only it survives, it thrives. But how? Years ago, um, when my wife and I were still dating, she was—we uh, were in college—and she loved this author called Elizabeth Elliot. Now, I don't know if you know the story of, of the Elliots, but. Uh, Elizabeth and Jim Elliot uh, were young and they went down and they uh, were missionaries uh, with a group of several other people and down to, they wanted to reach an unreached tribe of people who had never heard the gospel and these were cannibals and very difficult people. And, and in the course of that, her husband was murdered uh, by this group of people. And uh, then she had this young child and later on she went back to those same people and, and brought the gospel to them. And my wife and, was thinking at that time, as we were engaged and all this type of stuff, and it terrified her. This whole concept of having me be murdered or something like that—what was she going to do? And, and putting herself into Elizabeth Elliot's shoes and all these kinds of things—like, how would I handle such horrible things? And we went to one of those conferences where she spoke, and my wife got to go up and speak with Elizabeth Elliot, and and expressed her concern over this. And, and Elizabeth said to her, uh, she said. Um, the, the grace to handle the trial comes with the trial. She said, I, I would have no idea how I would have handled those things. You know, if you would have told me before I left I was going to handle it, would, it would have terrified me. But the grace to handle the trial came with the trial. You see, God hasn't abandoned us. Not by a long shot. The grace to handle the world that we live in is ours today, it comes with the world that we handle today. Now, Peter understood this a little bit, and we're going to be in the book of First Peter. And so if you have a Bible, you want to pull it out. If you don't, pick up one of these really snazzy new Bibles that we have. that have our logo on it. i have to pick up one of those, and you could take it home, give it to a friend or something. Cool as that. But um, if you have one, you want to be turning into in First Peter, and uh, that's on page 850 in our Bibles. And uh, as you're turning, let me tell you a little bit about this book. It was written by the Apostle Peter, hence the name. Now, this is interesting because the Apostle Peter was a big-time guy in the church, right? And yet, the only two books that we have written by him, directly from him, are 1 and 2 Peter, which were written right at the end of his life. They were written in the year 64 A.D. Now, let me tell you a little about A.D. 64 It was not a happy time in in the world. Uh, uh, There was this guy named Nero who came to power, and he was the emperor of the known world. He was a young man. And uh, for several years, first he thought he, he turned out to be good, and then he got very, very, very selfish and bad and did all kinds of thug things. Well, uh, around that same time, you have Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul writes most of the New Testament, starts all these churches, all these types of things. Paul ends up getting arrested and, uh, in Jerusalem, and he appeals to Caesar, right? And so Paul has to now go see Caesar, even though all the charges against him are bunk, and all the officials say this isn't, you know, once you appeal, you gotta go. So he's gonna go see Nero. And he goes and sees Nero in the spring of 64. And so there's Paul, and he's gonna talk before Nero. What happens? We don't know. Church history is split. Either Paul is executed, um, and uh, that's the end of him on this earth, or he is set free, Nero lets him go, and he goes to Spain to start churches. We're not sure which of the two, but Either way, Paul is out of the picture. He is on the fringe of the world, or he is in the next world. But he's not around. And he's certainly not in Rome after spending a little bit of time in Rome. Then, that was the spring. In in July of 64, Nero decides he wants to play with matches. And he ends up starting the whole city on fire. And people understand that he did this. Now, he said that he didn't, but everybody knew better. And so it's a society, the culture is getting very frustrated, upset with this, this, this young emperor who is, you know, you know, burning down the town. And uh, so by October, Nero has a brilliant idea. He's going to blame it all on the Christians. That's what happens in October. And when he blames it on the Christians, he goes all out because he's emperor. He has the entire weight of the Roman Empire behind him. He's got armies and all these things. And he says all these Christians did it. And so he began persecuting Christians really bad. He would kick in their doors. He would capture the Christians. They had spies out there to find them. They would torture the Christians to let them know where other Christians were, to rat them out. Right? And then how did he kill them? All kinds of ways. One of which is he would burn them alive in his gardens to light them. It was a bad time to be a Christian. Faith was under attack. It was a very hostile environment for faith. And what does this man, Peter, do? Now, Peter, at this time in his life, is probably 63, 64, 65 years old, right? He's been a leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's probably got a nice little office, right? He's got a lot of weight in the church now. When he talks, you know, people listen. He's got respect. He's at that time in his career when he's kind of earned that that type of respect. And Peter could have said, Oh, that's really bad what's happening in Rome. And he could have sent his very best men up to help. But what does Peter do? Peter is compelled by love and he goes right into Rome. And that's where he writes 1 and 2 Peter. He writes 1 Peter in the midst of a society and a culture that is that is being torn apart, the church is being ripped apart. Horrible persecutions. He's right there in the middle of it. He goes. He goes because he's compelled by love. He's compelled by service. He's compelled by compassion and kinship with his fellow believers. And he goes to Rome in the midst of the persecution, in the the very center of its worst. And what does he do? He sees how bad it is. And he says, you know what? We need to warn the other Christians. And so he writes this book, 1 Peter, before he was arrested, and then 2 Peter, after he was arrested, right before his execution. And he goes up there and he writes this letter, and who does he write it to? Well, it tells us, which is an interesting thing, if you look at it, it says, verse 1, it says, to God's elect, exile, scattered through the providences. And where are these places? Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Do those names sound familiar? Probably not, but maybe if you read the book of Acts, those are the very places that Paul planted churches. Why would Peter be writing a book to the churches that Paul planted? Because Paul's either dead or he's on the farthest course of of the empire. He's out of the picture. And Peter knows that it's not a Peter or Paul church thing. It's a Christ church thing. And he's here in in Rome facing the horrible persecution. And he warns the other Christians, trouble's coming, but it's okay. Okay. He writes to them about this grace, about how to overcome. And that's what we find. And so the purpose of this book is to prepare God's people for persecution, for hardship, for faith to grow in the midst of difficult environments. And the theme of this book is God's grace. Now with that, let's get into the book. It's, it's pretty fun. Hopefully you're, you're there and I gave you enough time. Peter begins this book and he talks about how we're going to have grace to overcome this persecution. Where is this grace coming from? And he begins with this. He says that we need to find grace and hope. How, where does the grace arrive to us as Christians to, to thrive as, as those of people of faith in a hard place when difficulties come? And the first thing he says, we need to look at our hope. In verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a what? living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is not dead. You know, the world it sometimes goes through phases where it's, you know, very warm to faith and very good and easy, and, and and then it goes through places that it's hard. But that's okay. Our hope doesn't die because it's not based on the fluctuations of this world. It's based on something much more enduring. I think that's a, it's a huge thing is that our hope is not something that was, something that was placed in, in, in something years ago in a dead promise. Jesus actually died and he actually rose to life again. I mean, that's, that's history. Try to explain world history, the growth of the church, without a real raised Jesus. I dare you. I've tried to myself before I was a Christian. It's, it's, a very, it's an exercise in frustration if you try to do it. Jesus really died. He really rose again. He, he really did do some amazing things. He proved that he is God. He saved us. And that hope is living. It's not something that is dead or stagnant. He's given us the Holy Spirit and he's given us a promise he's coming back and he's given us an eternal kingdom that's coming. And guess what? Our promise this hope. It says this is living hope. It is, uh, in verse of, uh, 3, it says, a living hope through a resurrection of Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to reveal in the last time. You understand that our place in heaven is not there because of a popularity vote. Our place in heaven is not there because there's this church here on earth is strong enough to make sure that we overcome this world. Christ has overcome this world. Your place in heaven is, is secure. Your hope is secure. You, you, heaven's not going to be overthrown thrown by this world. right? North Korea, even if they get all the nukes, can't overthrow God. I think that's a pretty good thing. right? Even if all of the media and all the times makes Christians look stupid, it doesn't matter. Heaven is still there. There are still thr- angels beyond number worshiping God. Our hope is is secure. Now something I think is amazing is this it puts into perspective for us this world is a temporary place isn't it? This world has a beginning and this world has an end. It's a very temporary thing. It's kind of like Brock Osweiler. Do you remember him? Right? He was he was a quarterback for the Broncos last year. Right? And and he even started for a while and all that and then after the Super Bowl Some people thought that Brock was going to be enduring. And so after the Super Bowl, they went online and they bought Brock Osweiler jerseys to go watch the next games. But Brock Osweiler was not enduring for Denver, was he? See, they placed their hope in the wrong things and they bought the wrong things and they identified with the wrong things. This world is a temporary place. It's not going to be around forever. Forever. If we buy into this world and we identify with this world, we're the ultimate fools. You understand that there is a kingdom that's coming that lasts forever. You and me, though, are in the kingdom that, that have Christ. I'm going to celebrate my trillionth birthday someday. It's going to have a lot of candles. I mean, awesome. <laughs> you understand that that's the reality. And Jesus is not just coming back, He exists today making a place for us today. The Holy Spirit is with us today, right here. But this world that we're on will not be here at some point. We have to understand that and grasp that. This brokenness will end. And Peter begins, when the people are in the midst of horrible suffering, we have to remember the reality of reality. This world is temporary. It is, it is just a thing, a spark that is here today and gone tomorrow. For you and I, we live Forever. Our hope is in something forever. Our kingdom is enduring forever. There is a place coming where the media will praise God, when the culture will praise God, when the governments of the world will honor God because he's the king of kings and lord of lords. said That place is going to be forever. If I'm going to buy a jersey, it's going to be for that king. That's what he begins with. We have to realize that our hope Is in something much greater than this world. It doesn't matter ultimately who becomes the next president or the next CEO of whatever big studio or who those things are nice if they go our way, but ultimately what matters is that our king is already on the throne and he's never gonna leave it. We're part of an eternal kingdom, and we need to identify with that kingdom first and most. We if our faith is gonna survive, we need to find Hope, And that's where we get God's grace to handle this world. That's how it keeps us from freaking out. Now, the next thing he talks about that is that we have to find the hope. And why? Because suffering is inevitable. Look at verse 6. I think it's, it says, In all this you greatly rejoice. Okay, that's cool. Why? Though now, for a little while, you're going to have to suffer trials and grief of all kinds. Think <coughs> of all that. How many Christians think, God, you should take away my problems? I struggle with this. I've prayed God how many times for you to take this away, and I'm still struggling. It's not God's job to make you comfortable. We broke this world. People always ask, How can a good God allow bad things to happen? Well, a good God allowed us to hijack this world from Him, and He's allowing us the consequences of that. That's what He's doing. Bad things happen to good people in a broken place. That's what happens. And we're part of this. As long as we're on this sinking ship, we're going to suffer. Jesus promised it. If you're a Christian here today and you're suffering, welcome to the club. There is no human that goes through life without shedding tears. It doesn't happen. There is no person that doesn't have a dream dashed from time to time. In fact, that's usually the norm. This world is a difficult place. Suffering is inevitable. But it says that we can greatly rejoice. What? In the midst of suffering? Why? Because we know it's going to end. We know it's temporary. This broken planet is going to end. Suffering is inevitable. But you know what is cool about suffering? Is verse 7 reminds us that it has a purpose. That once we are in Christ, as it reminds us, and Paul reminded us in, in Romans 8, it says this that uh, here in, in 1 Peter, and talks about this here, the same thing. It says, These have come so that that all of the uh, proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined my fire, may result in the praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. All those things, it says, all of your suffering, all of the things that we've got to suffer, all of many different kinds of trials. For the Romans, at that time, the Roman Christians, it was the threat of being burned alive for their faith. For you and me, it's a little different. But it doesn't matter what trials we face if it's sickness or if it's hardship or if it's, if it's hunger or if it's being ridiculed, everything that we face, these things are opportunities that God is giving us to show the genuineness of our faith. How does it show the genuineness of our faith? Well, when I go through suffering and I say, Ah, this is horrible, but it will end. And it's going to hurt me, but it won't destroy me because I'm part of an eternal kingdom. And I'm going to stick with God even though it hurts right now. And I'm going to trust that God's powerful even though right now his enemies seem to have the upper hand. But I know ultimately it's just by his mercy that they have the upper hand for a short time. But he's carrying me through this. You see, when I stick with God closer than anyone, when my faith is solid because I remember the ultimate promises, world is not all there is, these things, these pains that we go through, when I go through them with God, prove my faith is real. And what happens with that? It says it results in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's why in Romans 8, when I, I, I mentioned it, it says this, that everything, God works all things to the good of those who, who love him are called according to his purpose. All things. Your suffering has been given purpose. So if God has allowed it in your life, embrace it. Don't have to like it, but you have to be faithful in it. And the grace to be faithful in it comes with the trial. Will it be too much for you to handle? Yes, it will be too much for you to handle. That's why you need God. That's why you need his church. But you will endure it. And the faith will overcome. The grace that we have to overcome the pain in this world is found in the hope of heaven. Let us not forget that. I will tell you that is not something that I say just from theory. It is something that I say from practice. There were many years that I was angry with God because of the things I saw that were happening with my wife. And you know what? I prayed and prayed and a lot of people prayed and prayed and guess what? She didn't get better. And you know what? God is still good. You know, God has used her suffering to to bring Him glory. God has magnified her ministry and mine in the midst of, of that. I had to trust Him in the midst of it. I'm not just saying these words. These are things that are true. And when our hope started, stop, my hope stopped being in this life and having the, the life that I dreamed that I was going to have here, when I finally put that to death and said, you know what, I'm living for the kingdom, it's when things changed and hope came back into my life and energy came back into my life and I saw my <coughs> suffering as not as though a curse from God but as an opportunity. And God used it and continues to use it. Find your grace in hope. And as we do that, then we see that we need to find our grace also in holiness. That God gives us the grace to handle this world through holiness, and He says in First 1 Peter 1.12, actually is where that it begins. He begins making that it says it was revealed to them uh, that uh, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of things now told you by, by those who have preached the gospel to you, and by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even the angels long to look into these things. The gospel is something that is amazing. And then it says in verse 13, Therefore, with your minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ revealed is revealed that he's coming. Many times in scripture you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore?" Right? That's what we do. And it says there, Therefore, set your minds that are alert and fully sober. The faith is not a place where we check our brains at the door. For people that say I'm too smart to, be, to have a person of faith, those people are deluded. Life requires faith, but it requires good faith. And when it says with our minds fully sober, we need to be aware of what's the therefore, what, what, are, we, what are we reminded of? Well, it's reminding us of, of the reality of reality, that this world is temporary, but our eternal home, our hope is secure, it's heaven, and it's coming. And because of that, we need to be aware of this in everyday life. That the things we see are temporary, but the world to come is eternal. And because of that, we set our hope on the grace to be brought to us. If you knew that heaven was coming, but you didn't know you were forgiven, that would be terrifying. But it says there in verse 14, As obedient children then, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You see, because we know the eternal kingdom is coming, we need to live according to that kingdom. That's what holiness is. Verses 16, it says, just as it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, let's talk about, holy is not, this is not a call to moralism. Holiness is not perfection. Holiness is being set apart. God is holy, holy, holy. He is way different than the rest of this world. He is set apart. He is different from this world. I'm so grateful for that. He is unique. And he has called us to be like him. This is not to, a call to moral perfectionism, but it is a call to be different in how we identify with. We're supposed to identify with our father. Children look like their father, right? Our culture needs to match the culture of heaven. That's what it means. What it means is this, is Christians shouldn't look to act like Christians. Christians should look to act like Christ. Right? We need to, to not just learn about God, we need to practice godliness. We need to live in such a way that we're living according to a new standard, a new hope. Now in that, we find a grace. When Christians become together and we say, listen, we're living this new way, this new life together, there is, there's a kinship, isn't there? there is a, it's a reminder to us that this world is not the ultimate world. We have the privilege of like a, a foretaste of, of eternal uh, culture, heavenly culture. We get to do awesome things like love one another, serve one another, even when other people don't see it. Forgive, not live in bitterness, right? We get to live a way of life of generosity and of, of patience, we get to find harmony because we, we all agree that our own standards of right and wrong are not correct, but God's standard of right and wrong is correct. So we're going to live by that. We have holiness, and in that holiness, we find that there's an amazing grace and harmony that he begins to talk about starting in verse 22. It says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Christian love is not something that is just a smile on a pat on the back on a Sunday morning. We're in this together. right? This is a hostile environment. And you know what? We need each other. God gives us grace to handle this world together. I- I'm not in this alone. When this world is hard, I stand with you. And you stand with me. I think of so many of you who have came and have either held me while I cried over the last couple of years as I was frustrated with my wife or listened to me bent, right? Or have come and done practical things and, you know, helped us fix stuff and, and those types of things or fed us. We were together and my wife and I have had the privilege of standing with a lot of you in the midst of hardship and difficulties. There is a harmony that we have because we are the people of God, part of the eternal kingdom of God, that reminds us that, that this world is temporary, which reminds us of our hope, which allows us to overcome this world. So, how do we live in this kind of harmony? Well, he gives us some ideas. Uh, I think that the first thing we have to do is recognize the reality of this world it's not eternal. People are like grass, this world is just temporary, but, but God's word is the rock. Then we begin by, we reject dead living. uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, And therefore it says, Rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Look at that. You look at those, let's not just go through those too fast, look at those. What what does malice do? Anger at another person, does that destroy harmony and, and relationship? Yeah, it's hard to like somebody when you want to rip their face off. Or how about deceit? Does deceit hurt relationships? When you're lying to another, yeah, it's hard to have if you can't trust one another. Or how about hypocrisy, acting one way in front of somebody and then a totally different way when you're out, not near them? Does that hurt relationships? Yeah, we've got to be real and authentic with one another. How about envy, you know, being upset that somebody else has something good? Does that hurt relationships? Absolutely, right? We need to celebrate one another's victories. How about slander, saying wicked things about one another? Does that hurt relationships? Yeah, every one of these things he mentions are a direct affront to unity. And so it says, don't have it. That's why in the church it's so important, not just in this building or in this group of people, but as people of Christ, that we don't slander or envy. that We love one another deeply from the heart. Why? Because it's not about this world. Why would I envy somebody getting something a little in this world? Plus, they're my brother or sister. Don't I want the king? When they're enriched, the kingdom of God is enriched. Why would I talk bad about my brother and sister? We're in this together. How can we overcome this world if we're trying to overtake each other? We have to reject this dead living, that the world loves, this world lives by that kind of living, but we're part of a different culture, so we're called up to a new culture. And then it says that we need to grow up. We need to grow up on grace. Verse 2, it it says, uh, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk that is pure so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. What is that pure spiritual? It's the gospel? It's the reminder that all have sinned, that God came and paid for our sins, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It kind of levels us, doesn't it? It takes away that whole thing that I'm more worthy of things than you are. It reminds us we're in this together. We need to grow up in that grace. Together. And then... As we do that, uh, like First John 3.16 says that we can then do things that we've never done before, like we can love other people. Why? Because we've first been loved. And in this, it says we need to keep Christ as our foundation. Verses 4 through 8 in there. It says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God as a precious to him, you are also living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, special people, Acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. You know what a cornerstone is? I didn't know this earlier on. I mean, it makes sense. It's the stone that's in the corner, right? (laughs) But the reason they put it there is it sets the standard for the rest of the building. See, wherever the stone is, that's what level is now. If anything beyond that goes up higher, it's out of whack. If it's lower, it's out of whack. If If the angle, it sets the angle of the whole building, doesn't it? So so if the cornerstone is this way, the building's going to face that way. If it's like this, it's going to go that way. Jesus is the cornerstone. He sets the standard for our life. We come to him, and you know what? When we're connected to him, we are also living. We have purpose in life. Christ is our, is our standard. And in that, we can accept that new identity that he gives us. And look at these things he calls us a holy nation. Isn't that awesome? We're not just like this nation. This is a great nation, but it's not an eternal nation. We're part of a holy nation that is perfect. We have a dual nationalities. Awesome. And our real nation, the one that we fly the banner of, the flag, it's great. It's got an awesome economy. People are cared for. It doesn't have corruption. It's a good place. How about this? He says, you're a royal priesthood. Do you ever feel that you are not important? You're important now. And what does a priest do? Intercedes on behalf of people to God. That's what a priest's job is. You understand that we're in a world of people who need God, and God says to you, You have my authority to go and talk to them about me. But He also says that we're a people of mercy. I think that's interesting because we can only give what we've received. There's a reason why we don't hate the heathen, even though sometimes they hate us. It's because we have been loved, we've been shown mercy, so we can be forgiving and kind, we can actually love our enemies. We can do the impossible. We can pray for those who persecute us. We can have hope even when they take away every earthly thing and we can still say, I love you, because God loves you. Our hope isn't in this world. And so then in verse 11 and 12, it says that we need to live according to this new culture. We have to do it. It says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war within your soul. And live good lives among the pagans that though they accursed you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here's a challenge for us. How do we live that kind of good life? We don't just live that kind of good life without remembering the hope that we have. The grace to live good and peaceful lives. Even in a world where culture says if you live this way, you're wicked and awful. (laughs) It says, you know what? Continue to live that way. Continue to love, continue to forgive, continue to hold to what is true and right and good. And when Jesus returns, it's going to result in in praise and glory. And so that's how we ought to live. The grace to overcome this world is not an arbitrary thing. It's a guaranteed thing. The faith has endured many persecutions, many difficult times, and it will endure many others. You know, Christians have endured many difficult things, right, over the ages, We've, we've had all kinds of bad things happen to us, and guess what? Faith only gets stronger. And so we don't fear the brokenness, but we have been sent into the midst of the brokenness to heal the broken with Christ. And we only can do that with God's grace. And that begins when we allow God to come into our own life and our own brokenness, and we receive his help and his, his healing for ourselves. Because so we can only give the mercy and the grace and the healing that we've received, right? Right? Well, how do we do that? Well, I've got some options for you. Ideas like I'd like to do. If you have your, your connection card, here's some things as we, we start this series in First Peter about how to have this grace that helps us to live effectively in this world. There's some things to do. Maybe you need to memorize First Peter 2.21. You know what? A lot of us think that, oh no, I'm suffering. Oh, this is wrong. I'm off script from God. No, Jesus actually was on script when he suffered, right? And so you and me, there are times that we must suffer. Guess what? God's at work with it. He set us an, Christ set us an example to follow. And so that's a powerful verse for you to hold on to. Maybe that's what you need to memorize and think. to Get away from this silly concept of how can a good God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? Say, so you know what? Our good God uses bad things for the good of people. Memorize this verse. Hold it so it'll, hold, it'll anchor your faith. Or how about this? Maybe you want to read 1 Peter, these chapters that, that we preached on today. Don't just take my word for it. Read them yourself. Hear the concept. See what God has to say to you. Or how about this? Maybe this week you say, I'm going to live in hope. Maybe right now something's happening in your world. You've been rocked because your hope has been in this world. And that's what's causing your faith to have trouble. Maybe this week as trouble comes, you remind yourself that it will soon pass. This world will soon pass, but you need to live for the eternal things. And that's where you find your hope. Maybe that's where you begin. Or maybe this. Maybe you need to live in holiness. Maybe if you look at your life, you say, you know what, I have adopted the culture of this world instead of the culture of heaven. The way that I'm living, the things that I'm doing are, are more akin to what I see people of this world doing than I see what, what I imagine what we'll be living like in the kingdom of God, the culture and the character that I see lived out in Christ. Maybe there are things there that you need to repent of. Say, I'm going to turn away from this dead living. Maybe it's uh, hatred, maybe it's anger, maybe it's cheating somebody, maybe it's the way that you speak to one another. I don't know what it is, but... Maybe you say, you know what, I'm going to choose a different way. Not so I can be saved, but because I am saved. Because I'm part of a different culture and I'm going to choose holiness. Or how about this, maybe you live in harmony. Maybe there are things that either connect with the church family, serve one another as believers. right? Uh, maybe for you, it's maybe your belief system is at odds with God's belief system. Living in harmony says that, you know what, you're going to say as hard as it is, and we all have to do this, by the way, I'm going to trust what God says is right, even if it disagrees with what I say is right. Maybe that's what you need to do. Or maybe it's making peace with somebody, another Christian, another believer, brother or sister, that you have something against. But I tell you what, there's got to be something in there for everybody. Right? But when we do this, when we, when we find our grace in hope and in holiness and in harmony, we have the power that it takes to live an effective life of faith in this world. So let's do that. Now we're going to uh, wrap things up. As, uh, as uh, you uh, make those uh, commitments here in a minute, I want you to take these and put them into the offering basket. And uh, and uh, as we do that, um, let's uh, just say, uh, go to God as a quick prayer um, to help us make sure that we, we fulfill these things. So please pray with, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you. For everything that you've done, we're grateful that you give us an eternal inheritance that cannot spoil, perish, or fade, that is kept safely in heaven for us, those of us who are shielded by God's power in Christ, even in the midst of this broken world, and that any suffering that you allow in our life, you are already using for our good and the good of your kingdom. So, Father, let us not shriek away from this that you have called us to, but let us fall on the grace that will carry us through. Father, let us be a people of hope. Let us be a church of holiness. Let us be a family that is marked by our harmony. And, God, in this we pray that you would be glorified and that you would reach the broken and that you would heal as many as possible and call them home to that eternal inheritance to join it with us. Lord, let us live this way. And Father, uh, we're going to pray too for the offering and and, uh, Lord, also the commitments that are being made right now. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Father, to to not just give generously but give graciously knowing that this world is temporary but the kingdom we're investing is eternal. Let us not just make commitments lightly but let us live in such a way, God, that we're giving you our best and our all. For you are worthy. And Lord, we pray all of this in in Christ's name.